Our text for this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5. We read the verses 17 through 20. Matthew 5, verse 17, where our Lord Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And after the proclamation of God's law, let's respond singing from Psalm 19, stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the history of the church, the law of God has often been misunderstood. And the pendulum of misunderstanding often seems to swing either too far to the right or far to the left. And these misunderstandings of God's law have a tremendous impact on the life, on the conduct of God's people. For example, the Law of God has swung far to the, the right, if you will. And there are those, past and present, who believe that obedience to the law is a meritorious way of attaining or at least securing your salvation. They believe that you have to keep God's commandments in order to be saved, or at least to keep your salvation. They look at the Ten Commandments almost like a ladder, and the ladder has different rungs, and you keep the commandments in order to reach heaven. And you know then that I'm referring to churches like Rome. Rome, which basically was a continuation of the error of the Pharisees. But then the pendulum swings far to the other side as well. And there are those past and present who believe that obedience to the law is no longer necessary for the people of God. Because they say we are saved by grace and not by works. They believe that grace has canceled, has nullified the law of God. They say that the law of God that refers to the old dispensation, the old covenant times, and they're obsolete, they're outdated. In the New Testament, we have grace. The Old Testament, there is the law. New Testament, we have grace. 
Paul had to deal with such people already in his letter to the Romans. There were these people who are given the fancy title antinomians, which literally means they were against the law. They said that the law of God has no place anymore in the life of the redeemed Christian. And that same idea is being perpetuated in many evangelical churches today who give no place to the reading of the law like we've done this morning, who give no place to the explanation of God's law as we have it in our catechism and as we go through the preaching of the catechism each year through the commandments. And these people will often quote, or should I say misquote, the words that we read from Paul in Romans 6 verse 14 where they say, we are not under the law, we are under grace. And so they said, old people, uh, the people of the Old Testament, they were under the law, we are under grace. And so the law has been pushed out. This morning, I would like to proclaim to you what Jesus says about the law. He came as a teacher of the law, and in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll, you remember that our words are the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus is going to give a radical interpretation and application that would differ tremendously from the interpretation and application by the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus knew that the interpretation which he was going to give to the law was going to upset the scribes and the Pharisees immensely. He knew that they were going to charge him as a rebel, as a revolutionary who intended to abolish the law of God. And so before he begins his radical interpretation and radical application of God's law, he sets a few things straight at the very beginning regarding how to view the law of God. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. I preach to you the word of God with this theme. Jesus asserts his unwavering loyalty to the moral principles laid down in Old Testament scripture. There's actually four points to the sermon, but because of its length, I've divided it into two. And the Lord willing, next week, Sunday morning, then I will have the privilege to preach here as well. And then I'll cover this third and fourth point. But this morning, we're going to consider two of the four points. First of all, the fulfillment of the law in the lives of Christ's disciples. And then secondly, the permanence of the law until heaven and earth pass away. And so we're going to focus on verses 17 and 18. I'll repeat that. Jesus asserts his unwavering loyalty to the moral principles laid down in the Old Testament scripture. And we're going to consider, first of all, the fulfillment of the law in the lives of Christ's disciples. Do not think, says Jesus, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus here is talking about the law and the prophets. If you were a Jew, you would automatically recognize those two words as being a reference to the whole of the Old Testament. We have on our Bibles, on the spine here, it says Holy Bible. 
right? Which means the sacred book. But the Jews had their Old Testament divided into three sections. There was the, the law, there was the, the prophets, and then there were the writings. And if you like the Hebrew, it was the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim. And what they did then is they took the two first words, two first letters of each of those three parts, and they came up with the, the law and the prophets, the Tanakh, as they called it. They would take their, not Bible, they would take their Tanakh, and that simply meant the law and the prophets. And so when Jesus here refers to the law and the prophets, he's talking about the Old Testament in its entirety. And so what he's saying is, I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I didn't come to bring the Old Testament and push it away as if now we are people who only have the New Testament. And that's important because there's a lot of evangelicals who focus almost entirely on the New Testament. But Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the Old Testament. Now, when he's talking about the, the Old Testament, basically we can divide the Word of God into two parts. In God's Word, there are the commandments and there are the promises. First of all, those promises where God says, this is what I do for you. But there are also those parts in the Bible which says, this is what I want you to do for me. So we have the promises of what God says I will do for you, and we have the obligations what you will do for me. And I say this because there are some people who understand the words of our text to mean that Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament. And then they understand Jesus to say, don't think that I came to abolish the promises of the Old Testament. No, I didn't come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill all the promises. And we know that that is doctrinally true. Jesus did come as the fulfiller of all the Old Testament promises. Paul says that in Christ, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen. So that's true. But that's not what our text is speaking about. Our text here, when Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the Old Testament scriptures, he's not talking about the promises there. And that becomes clear to us when you look at verse 19, for example, when Jesus says in verse 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches the commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's also clear from verse 20 where Jesus speaks about the righteousness of his disciples, that it must exceed that of the Pharisees. Righteousness means perfect obedience to God's law. And so when you look at verses 19 and verses 20, you find out that the Lord Jesus is not talking about the promises of what God will do for his people, but here he's talking about the obligations, what God demands of his people. And so then we have to interpret verse 17 in this way. He says, don't think that I have come to abolish the commandments of the Old Testament. I didn't come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. Don't think that I'm saying that all those obligations that were required of God's people in the old dispensation are being nullified. 
And he's not talking here about the ceremonial laws about sacrifices and feast days and clean and unclean. Those ones are fulfilled in a different way. But he's talking here about God's covenant law. His moral principles that have been laid down in the scripture. He says, don't think that I'm saying that those moral principles of the Old Testament are no longer applicable. I'm not bringing an end to those moral principles. I am here in order to fulfill them. Now there's two ways that we can understand this as well. You'll understand what I'm saying then is that this text has been variously understood and often misunderstood. And so it's important that we have the the correct understanding here. There's two ways in which Jesus could fulfill God's moral obligations. Two ways that Christ could fulfill God's law. He could do so in his own person, by himself. He could render perfect obedience himself as a man on earth for 33 years. He could keep all of God's laws perfectly himself. Or he could have those laws fulfilled in us. And the first one is again doctrinally absolutely true. Our Lord Jesus Christ came as our substitute. You know that. He came in our place. He came as a man. He came to render perfect obedience to all of God's commandments. He did that for us in our place. He kept God's commandments. You shall have no other gods. Jesus didn't have any other gods. You shall not make a graven image. He didn't make a a carved image. You shall not misuse my name. He didn't misuse God's name. He was the righteous man. He fulfilled all of God's laws And he did so as our substitute in our place. So that now we receive the righteousness of Christ. God looks at us as if we've always kept all of his commandments perfectly. And so that is absolutely true. But again, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying, I have come to fulfill the law in your place. I have come to fulfill it on your behalf. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is... I have come in order to cause you to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. He's talking here about the obedience which his disciples are going to render. Jesus says, don't think that I'm abolishing the moral principles that have been laid down in the Old Testament as if you don't have to live by them anymore. As if they are obsolete and outdated. Don't think that I'm, I'm nullifying the law which says you shall not kill, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. I'm not bringing those commandments to an end. I'm not saying that they are no longer in force as the moral principles for your life. No way, he says. I have come to fulfill these commandments in you. I have come to bring the law to its perfect expression in you. We read together from Romans 8. and In Romans 8, Paul is saying something essentially the same as what our Lord Jesus is saying. And I want to read those words again to you. Romans 8, it's in verse 4 where Paul writes... We'll start, I'll start at the end of verse 3. It says, 
In fact, I'll read verse 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. And so, and this is important, he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now, if you know the context, and I think you do, of Romans 7, for example, Romans 7 is that chapter where Paul laments the, the sin that still clings to him. He, he laments his inability to render perfect obedience to the law. He says, I, I, I want to do what God's law says, but I don't do it. And, and sometimes there are the things I don't want to do, I don't want to sin, but... Sometimes I do. And, and the sad fact is that Paul says, I can't change myself. I, I can't make myself do the things I want. I can't stop myself from doing the things I don't want. I am powerless. And so he's lamenting, wretched man that I am, miserable man that I am. I can't change myself. No more than the leopard can change its spots. No more than... The Ethiopian can change the color of his skin. I can't do anything about the sin in my life. I can't render the obedience which I need. But then Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in chapter 4 and he says, For what the law was powerless to do. I had the law, he says. I had the commandments. I was told what I had to do. I was told what I must not do. But that law didn't help me. The law was powerless to, to bring about the change in me. It told me what I should do, what I shouldn't do, but it couldn't change me because of sin, which powerfully held its grip on me. But what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And what did he do in order to break the power of sin in my life? He says, he condemned sin in sinful man. Why did he do so? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. So God sent his son into this world in order to condemn sin in man. That is, he sent his son into this world to destroy the powerful grip which Satan and sin had on us. Because in our old nature, we were slaves of sin. And we couldn't do anything except sin. But Christ came to destroy that powerful grip that sin had on us. And why did he do so? So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. And that's what Jesus is talking about in our text. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin that dominated our old nature so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so you see, Christ Jesus didn't only come to earth to fulfill the law for us as our substitute, but he also came to fulfill the law in us through our own obedience, 
And so there's two things that Christ did. He, he rendered perfect obedience himself to the commandments of God. But he also works in us in such a way that we render obedience to God's law. Our Lord Jesus Christ came in order to regenerate us, to renew us, to recreate us in God's image so that once again we can do what God requires of us. And so with that in mind then, I'll go back to our text. Jesus says, I have not come to annul the law as though you don't have to obey them anymore. No way, he said, just the opposite. I have come to fulfill the law in you. I have come to make it possible for you to once again walk in obedience to my commandments. I have come to make it possible for you to worship God, the only God. I have come to enable you to, to glorify God's name instead of misuse it. I have come to enable you to keep the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I have come that you may honor your parents. I have come that you may not kill. I have come that you may live faithfully in marriage. I have come that you may work instead of stealing. I have come in order to bring the law to its full expression in your life. And that, beloved, needs to be stressed in our circles. Because sometimes we stress our natural depravity. We stress our inability to attain righteousness. We rely our, we, we express our complete dependence and reliance upon the righteousness of Christ. Those are fundamentals, and, and we stress those things, and we must. Those are fundamentally important. But at times, we overlook the powerful working of the Spirit. Sometimes we overlook the regenerating power of the Spirit, whereby we are able to attain a measure of righteousness in our own lives now. And that's no credit to us, as if somehow we pat ourselves on the back. It's the work of God in us. As Paul says in Philippians 2, that God is at work in us both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And so, because of God working in us, we are able to start, we start to keep God's commandments. And we must never negate this work of God in us by stressing always our natural depravity and overlooking the grace of regeneration. You know, our Lord's Day 3 speaks about that. It says, are we so corrupt and totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? You all know the answer. You know the answer is, yes, we are. But do you know also that the catechism doesn't stop there? The catechism goes on. It says, yes, that's true. We are so corrupt. We are totally unable to do any good. We are totally inclined to all evil unless... And that word should be written in bold and italicized and underlined unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And so at the very beginning of our catechism, we say, yes, by nature we can't do any good. But by the grace of regeneration, we can do good. And if we as Reformed people stop with the doctrine of our total depravity, and if we don't go any farther then I dare say we will never fulfill the purpose for which Christ came to earth. 
then we're going to say, I can't do any good, even today as regenerated Christians. I can't do any good. I'm totally depraved. That's not what Jesus is saying in our text. Jesus says, I came into this world not just to fulfill all the righteous requirements of God's law for you. Yeah, he did that. And I want to stress that again, that our justification rests totally on this work of Christ. But Christ came to do far more. He came to fulfill the righteous requirements of God's law in us. Or, if you want to use Paul's words, Christ came to destroy the power of sin that characterized our old nature in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. So from what is said so far then, brothers and sisters, it's obvious the Lord Jesus upholds the permanence of the law, which is our second point. The permanence of the law until heaven and earth pass away. Jesus went on to say, Assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, I'm using here a different translation than the one you have in front of you. But it says literally in the, in the Greek, I say to you, literally says, Amen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law until all is, until heaven and earth pass away. Literally, Jesus talks about the yacht or the tittle. In the Hebrew alphabet, there's one tiny little letter. It's about the size of our apostrophe. You know that from school, right? If you're writing the word, this book is, belongs to dad, we say this is dad's book. And then we write D-A-D, and then there's that little comma up in the top, that apostrophe, and then we put the S. This is dad's book. That little tiny little apostrophe is the same as the Hebrew letter yot. It's the tiniest little letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Again, literally, the Lord Jesus talks about the tittle here. And the tittle is, is, is a tiny little hook on top of a letter. It, it's, it's like our letter F or our letter T. Right? You, the lower case. If you have the T, it's just straight down or straight across. But if you've got the F, you've got that little hook on the top of it. And that's what distinguishes the F from the T. The Hebrews had the same kind of things with some of their letters. They had a little hook on one or two letters. And that made a different letter. And Jesus says, even one of the tiniest little hooks on my commandment are not going to pass away and until heaven and earth pass away. And so it's pretty clear what he's saying here. Not even the tiniest part of God's law, of God's moral obligations, will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. And when will that be? When will heaven and earth pass away? Well, literally never. This present earth is going to be renewed. It's going to be cleansed. It's going to be burned with fire and all the evil that is going to be, is, is going to be destroyed that's on this earth. But this earth will remain. And it's going to be renewed. And the kingdom of God will descend from heaven to this world. And so there will be the new heavens and the new earth, but not entirely new in the sense of being totally different. It's going to be this earth glorified. And so Jesus is saying that there's not even the tiniest part of God's commandments that are ever going to fall away. 
the law of God is eternal. They will forever, God's commandments will forever govern the way we live on earth. Not just in this life, but also in the life to come. And that's important that we understand this. Because, as I said earlier, there are those who say, the law is, is Old Testament, the law is finished, it's abrogated, it's outdated, it's nullified. We are in the dispensation of grace. We are not under the law. In fact, that's what Jesus said. He said, or that Paul rather, in Romans 6, he said, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, this is not the time and, and the place to go into a great exegesis of what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 14. But I do want to make clear that in that chapter, Paul is again talking about the power of sin in the natural man. And what he says here is sin shall have no dominion over the person who has been joined to Christ, who shares in the benefits of Christ's death and his resurrection. If you have been crucified with Christ, then your old nature, your sinful nature has been crucified with Christ. And so you are no longer under the power and the dominion of sin. You are no longer under the tyranny of sin. Sin no longer dominates you. Sin no longer masters you. Sin no longer controls you. Sin shall not rule you, says Paul. Because you are not under the law. And as soon as we hear that, we say, well, that means then we're not under the Ten Commandments, right? They're no longer the rule for our life. And that's how people understand the, that phrase. We are not under the law. But we need to be able to discern from the Bible that there are, that the law of God has different powers. The law, for example, the law has the power to convict and punish, just like the law does in Canada. There's the RCMP, right, and there's the police. They have the power to convict you of wrongdoing, and they have the power to punish you, right? You'll go to court, you'll be sentenced, you'll get a fine or whatever punishment there is. And that's why people run away from the law. They try to evade the law because the law has the power to, to convict and punish. And the law of God has that power as well. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about a different power that the law has. The law has the power to incite sin. The, the law has the power to increase sin. Now that's, it's kind of hard to grasp, so I'll give you an example something the kids can identify with. Right. Mum is going to work out in the garden, beautiful spring weather, wants to get the flowers planted and weed, take the weeds out. And, and little Johnny is playing nicely with his Lego bricks. So mum says, Johnny, I'm going to go out into the garden for a little while. And you can play here. Now Johnny, I don't want you to eat any of the Smarties which are in the fridge. 
And little Johnny was nicely playing with his Lego blocks, making a building, dun dun dun. And mum says, Johnny, don't eat any of the Smarties that are in the fridge. And little Johnny all of a sudden looks up, Smarties? Did, did you say Smarties? I love Smarties, he's saying to himself. And of course, he says to mom, no, mom, I won't take any Smarties. But as soon as mom is out the door, he looks, yep, she's in the garden, and quickly he steals a few. Now, it's a silly example, but it illustrates what I want to say. Before mom said, don't eat the Smarties, there was no craving in him for the Smarties. That, oh, there was, but it would lay dormant in him. It wasn't active in him. He always loved Smarties, but... He wasn't thinking about it. He was thinking about building his building with Lego blocks. But as soon as mom came with the command, the law, you shall not eat Smarties. And suddenly there, there awoke in him an intense desire to do what was forbidden. Mom's command actually makes little Johnny think about snitching a few Smarties, which he wouldn't have thought if Mom hadn't said, don't eat any of the Smarties. That same kind of power is the power that sin has in our life. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says the law has a certain power over us. The law says you shall not steal. Steal? Hey, maybe I will. That would be an easy way to, get, to help me in my financial problems. Maybe I can just take a little bit of this from here. You shall not commit adultery. Oh, well, I'm not really so satisfied in my marriage right now. You shall not kill. Oh, I hate that. The command that says you shall not, it actually incites people to do what is forbidden. Paul talks about that in, in Romans chapter 7. He says that before the law came, I was sinful, of course, but Lay, the sin lay dormant but as soon as the law came sin revived in me sin awakened all of a sudden there's all this desire, this desire for sin in my life and that's what Paul is talking about he says now by the grace of God you who have been regenerated by the spirit of God you who have been redeemed from that power of sin you are no longer under the power of that law the, the, the power of the law of sin. Through the grace of God, sin has lost that power over, the, over, over us. When God comes to us with his commandments, we say, yes, Lord, that's what I want to do. And even though there are those evil remnants in us that incite us to do what is forbidden, we actually hate doing the things that, that we do. We hate the fact that we that we hate people. We, we, we hate the fact that sometimes we have immoral thoughts and desires. We hate the fact that we are struggling with greed and materialism. We fight that. And so the law of God, instead of inciting sin in us, the law of God actually works in us a desire to do what is good and holy. And so Paul is not saying we are not under the law. He says that, but he's not saying we are not under the moral principles of the Old Testament. That's not what he's saying. In fact, if Paul was to say that, it would go right against everything he's saying at the very beginning of, of chapter 6. 
Verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we sin in order that grace may abound? The very fact that we are saved by grace. Should that mean then that we commit all kinds of sin? And sin is transgression of God's law. And Paul says, by no means. How can you who have died to sin continue to live in it? How can you who have died to disobedience continue to be disobedient? How can you who were lawbreakers continue to break the law? It's impossible. You have died with Christ. You've been raised to a new life. You are not under the law anymore. You are not under the power of of sin anymore. It's vitally important, beloved, that you understand that because there are so many Christians today who are saying we are not under the law as a moral principle for our life. The law of our God is perpetual. It's eternal. If you really stop and think about it, where does that law of God come from? Because if we can answer that question, you'll understand why the law of God is eternal. Where does the law of God come from? Well, you say, well, God, of course. Yeah, but why did God come up with the commandments that he came up with? Why did he say, you can't make any images of me? I won't allow it. Why did he say, you can't abuse my name? Why did he say you have to keep the Sabbath day, the seventh day, and keep it holy? Why did he say you can't kill or hate? Why can't you commit adultery? Why can't you steal? God came up with these commandments, beloved, because of who he is and what he does. His own perfections, his own qualities, his own works make him come up with these commandments. Why does God say, you shall have no other God before me? Because of who God is. He is the only God. There is no other God beside him. And God says, then you you mustn't have another God besides me. So because of who God is, God says, no other gods. God says, you can't make an image of me. I won't allow it. And why won't he allow it? Because he says, because of who I am. I am the indescribably great God that is far greater than anything in creation that you would use to, to, to reflect me. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a snake like the Egyptians had snakes for their gods. I'm not a bull like the Romans had a bull for their god. He says, that's not like me. And, and therefore, because of who God is, God says, you can't make an image of me. I won't allow it. God says, you, you can't abuse my name because of who I am. I'm a great God. I'm a glorious God. I'm God of majesty. I won't allow my name to be dragged through the mud. Why do we have to keep the Sabbath? Because I, the Lord your God, created the world in six days. I rested the seventh. Therefore, what I did, you do. Why not kill? Why not hate? Because God says, I'm a God of love. I'm a God of life. Why not commit adultery? Because I'm a God of faithfulness. I'm a God who is faithful in my covenant relationship with you, and I want you to be the same. All of God's laws, beloved, for our life are, they arise out of who God is, out of the character, out of the qualities of God. And God will all, God created us to be his image bearers. And when he created us to be his image bearers, he wrote that law on our hearts. So that we thought and we acted and we desired the things that God did. And that's going to be the case in Paradise Restored. Already now in the new dispensation, the law of God has been written on our hearts. And in the new world, that law will be perfectly written on our hearts. And in the world to come, 
we will not serve any other God, and we will not blaspheme his name or misuse it in any way, and we will not kill, we will not hate, and we will not steal, and we will not be unfaithful. God's laws are eternal because of the unchanging qualities of our eternal God. And so God's law is perpetual. And that's why, beloved, we have to hear God's law being read to us every Sunday again. We mustn't follow the practice of so many evangelical churches where the law of God has been pushed out of the, out of the worship service. Because they say that's Old Testament. No, we have to safeguard the, the place of the law of God in our church services. And we have to safeguard the preaching of God's law, as we do through the catechism each year again. And our youth have to be taught in catechism classes what God requires of them from the commandments of our God. The devil, beloved, is trying to undermine the work of Christ. He's trying to frustrate the purpose for which Christ has come into this world. Satan's got a two-pronged attack. First of all, he's going to use our own confessions against us. He's going to use our doctrine of total depravity against us. He's going to say, you are depraved, you are wicked, you can't keep God's law. And of course, if that's all we believe, then we're going to fly the white flag of surrender. We're going to give up on sin. Why fight something you can't overcome? If you're in a losing battle, you might as well surrender. So if you can't keep God's law, why even bother trying? If you're powerless against sin, well, you might as well just give in to it. And that's what Satan will try to use, that doctrine of ours, of what we are by nature. He will try to keep us as if there has been no progress in our redemption, as if we are still totally depraved, as if we are still incapable of any good, denying the regeneration of the Spirit. But let's not lose sight, beloved, of the other part of our doctrines. Yes, by nature we are totally depraved, incapable of doing any good. But by the grace of God, we are regenerated and we begin to do good. And the devil's second attack is, as I said, he says the law of God is no longer valid. You don't have to worry about the commandments. But Christ says, as long as this world exists, as long as heaven and earth exist, and that's forever, so long will his law remain in force. And so, beloved, arm yourself with the truth of our text. Be ready to expose and also oppose the lie of the devil. And let's ardently pray that the indwelling Christ might empower us and enable us to fulfill the laws, the demands of God's law more and more. Amen.
Let's give thanks.